The Start On Demand. Hi there, it's Brett. It's the Thursday edition of the podcast for The Start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. All kinds of consternation over the fact that a second loan for Investors Group Field worth $82 million is being written off by the provincial government. So we'll discuss that in detail. We'll hear from Wade Miller, president and CEO of the Winnipeg Football Club, and we'll get some reaction to this news. We're also going to have coffee and talk about the fact that a woman in Quebec was basically told to get lost by her rental board after she complained because her landlords were trying to get her to seek help for her excessive snoring. She filed a complaint saying this was harassment. And they said, you know what? You should probably deal with your snoring. We're also going to hear from the head of the Manitoba Chambers of Commerce as Donald Trump continuing to talk tough on NAFTA. Small town salute to Selkirk. And as the mayor of Selkirk describes it to us, the Hollywood of the North. Turns out there's lots of exciting stuff going on in Selkirk, including Netflix shooting what sounds to be like a blockbuster series. The Santa Claus Parade, potentially saved by Skip the Dishes after a massive donation. Details on that. And we're going to meet another writer from Thin Air, the Winnipeg International Writers Festival. And this one is another collaboration. Yesterday, we had a collaboration between a scientist and an author. Today, two sisters got together to track the genealogy of their family as they traveled from London to London. Announcement from the province that they were writing down another part of the two-part loan to build IGF, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. A portion of the loan is really as as it's become to be known, has been written off, but that doesn't mean the Blue Bombers don't have any more mortgage payments. No, I think that was a huge, uh, my misconception, certainly, when you hear loan write-off. If someone told me my mortgage had been written off, I'd assume I don't have to pay my mortgage anymore. Not necessarily the case, right? I mean, it's a better deal for them now, but it's not a done deal. So there's work to be done for sure on the bombers front and people need to hear about that. Uh, yeah, we're going to unpack that. And that's, I think, the perfect word and terminology, Brett, uh, extensively as we make our way through this first hour and uh, throughout the morning. This is a big deal for a lot of people. And we're quite frankly, where a lot of people anticipated we'd be in terms of building this stadium. And so we will get words from Wade Miller and his own conversation with Richard and Julie from yesterday, we're going to play that in its entirety after 6.35. We just want you to hear everything unedited, and we'll just give you the opportunity to make up your own decision for yourself about where this puts us. And also, we have calls out to answer some questions about how this may have happened in the first place. I think we all, when we heard the deal come down, I don't know, six years ago, in terms of how this loan might work for Triple B, which is the consortium which controls the stadium, I think there was a lot of people saying, oh, come on, like that, this, this is unattainable. This is unattainable. Yeah. And so here we are. It's apparently unattainable. So there's lots to talk about. Maybe part of the, as you said, there was a, you had a misconception as well. And maybe it just comes to the terminology, right? Like I think of, uh, 
Of course, I end up thinking of a television clip, but I think of Kramer and Seinfeld. Well, they just write it off, Jerry. <laughs> I thought of that clip yesterday, too. Exactly. Do you and, even know what a write-off is? And do you know how people in the business community hate when you use that word? Because yeah. they assume if you own a business, oh, well, he can just write off this lunch, she can just write off right. this card. And there are some tax breaks and all the rest, but it doesn't mean you walk away with a free meal or a free vehicle and all the rest, right? So we hear these terms, and then we leave thinking... Like Kramer, no big deal. Just write it off. We, yeah, like, we're, we're good. And it, there is a difference, right, between a loan write-off and a loan, like, to forgive a loan, right? Right. They're, they're two completely different things. And it's more a bookkeeping thing for the province of Manitoba because you, you have an agreement in place. And essentially what's happened here is the province is acknowledging that the terms that were originally negotiated – the terms of those lo- of the loan cannot be met. Therefore, we're going to tear it up. We're going to write it off, and it's going to end up, in all likelihood, showing up on the books when the province releases its, releases its overall financial picture. I believe next Friday. It's coming soon, just days away, actually. And I think with that too, they made a promise, and they said yesterday they're committed to reducing that deficit and balancing the books by 2020. But they just added another 200 million. In all, in all, from That's the right, stadium because they if wrote you, off 119 million just back in August. And I'm not, I'm not firm on these numbers, but it was about 180, 180 million that they were able to reduce the deficit last year. And so you've sort of negated the situation. I'm going to double check those numbers, but it comes pretty close to saying, like, look, we saved some money last year. Uh oh. Now we owe this again, right? Right, and so uh, so as that's happening, I'm sitting I'm sitting on my couch last night watching President Trump ramble on for 83 minute news wow. conference yesterday, and he was super comfortable up there. Uh, many people suggesting a lot of his answers to the questions were incoherent. It was quite entertaining, to be honest with you. Uh, Canada got mentioned with regard to uh, lack of a deal on a new North American free trade agreement, which it will not be called that, by the way. Donald Trump want to be very clear. It's going to be the U.S. MC, he drew some correlation to the United States Marine Corps and thought that was pretty cool. And if Canada doesn't want in, we'll just leave the C off. It's not, it's not a big deal. Wow. So we'll play some audio for you from that. I was actually, quite frankly, waiting. It, it's like when you get out with uh, friends from work and they let their head da- hair down a little bit and they have a couple drinks, Loren. And they start telling you stories that maybe they shouldn't be telling you. And everybody in the room was just like, keep asking him questions. Maybe mm-hmm. he'll keep a- answering them. And he did. I, I read, I followed this Washington Post reporter, and there was a blog from her last night just talking about how um, wh- if you watch the whole thing, you have a, a better sense of who he might be as a person in terms of his both disdain for the media, in terms of who he picked to ad- ask questions, and how he went after certain reporters, but then also that love relationship that he has because he he's made a comment like well what we, the, the the stations need me to win because how your ratings would all plummet if I'm not the next president of the United States again uh, in in two and a half years time right so there's this this whole like circle where he goes uh, love hate is what it is and twice he claimed that he saved millions of lives based on his foreign policy towards North Korea and the fact that he suggested that Barack Obama was on the verge of pressing the button as it pertained to North Korea. It was a crazy ride. And of course, at the center of it is what we're going to hear about and what will have millions of people around the world, never mind just in the United States, focused on the U.S. Capitol as 
Brett Kavanaugh and uh, his accuser, Doctor Ford, uh, will get their time in front of the, the in front of the um, the Justice uh, Committee. Ten o'clock Eastern that starts, so we'll be going to our Washington Reporter at seven forty-five to talk about that, and of course, um, per- perhaps back again at nine because at nine o'clock our time is when uh, Kavanaugh and. Uh, his accusers take the stage, so to speak, because it is a big stage that they're on. At 6.45, we're going to have coffee and talk about a situation in Quebec where this woman who snores really loud <laughs> in an apartment to the point where her landlords tried to help her out by leaving her snoring products to help and asking, you know, basically telling her to, trying to nudge her gently to get some help because... People were complaining about how loud she is. Well, she actually complained about harassment, and she lost. Rental board basically told her to get lost. <laughs> <coughs> so we'll have ch- a chat about that. Oh, I hate it. When you're next to a snorer, though, my God. Yeah. How, ba- how hard was she snoring that somebody in the next apartment and above and below was, was had? Apparently, they were banging on the roof, like, from below, like, whenever she'd go to sleep. Really? Stop snoring. <laughs> like, I, with that broom. What I, is that <laughs> Friends episode where the guy was always banging from below? Hello with the broom, right. right? That's right. Be yeah, quiet I, up there. I got nothing because I'm that guy. <laughs> oh, really? I'm the freight train man. Do you need oh. one of those Darth Vader sleeping masks? No, I don't. I've been for the sleep study, and uh, the CPAP machine doesn't actually help me very much. Uh, sleeping on my side is far more effective. Oh. In fact, I've got one of these belts uh, that keep me on my side. <laughs> but but I but seriously? I seriously? Yeah, but I don't wear it. <laughs> like you're strapped into the bed? No, it's 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 actually got it's like a, a belt. pulley system. Wear Jackie it, can pull no. it from the other. Roll you over? Roll over, Greg! Um, I'm sharing too much this morning. It's like a belt. It goes around your chest, and it's got these little inflatable, uh, almost like, I would call it, uh, what, water wings? Okay. And they kind of go on your back, and then that way you put around, and then you have to stay on your side. You cannot physically roll over onto your back. And that's when I have my problems is when I'm on my back. They have those for sort of newborns, too, to keep them from rolling. So you're like a baby. Let's get a picture. Can you get us a picture of this, Brett, you think, tonight? And then we can dissect it more tomorrow. There will be no picture. The premier is calling it a raw deal, a scam, a shell game, he says, that left taxpayers on the hook. Of course, we're talking about the stadium and the news from Premier Brian Palster yesterday that the Manitoba government apparently has no choice but to write off a second loan now to the Bombers, this one in the tune of 80 plus million dollars. Despite the best efforts of the team on the field last year, uh, they, uh, where they profited the tune as an organization of over $2 million, that wouldn't even come halfway towards the obligations the NDP uh, set up for them under an agreement that was designed to fail, designed to fail the bombers, designed to fail for the people of Manitoba as well. We were told as Manitobans by the previous administration there wouldn't be a cost for us for the, uh, the stadium project. And we now know that at least $200 million has had to be written off as a consequence of that project. This is an unsustainable scam. There's just no other way to describe it. Of course, there was no hiding in that moment what was clear disgust from the Premier. But in the midst of all this, there was apparently also time for a quick joke. And to be noted, we're not just talking about nickels today, right? We're talking about millions. 
Okay, just in case I have to say, get it. Nichols is the quarterback, of course. Not what's owed here, but as far as some are concerned, and I, I listened to that yesterday and I laughed, and then I thought, that's not funny, and it, or punny, or however you want to go into it, right? I mean, this is some serious, this is serious cash we're talking about. Yeah, of course, and there have been cost overruns, uh, concerns about the stadium structure itself, replacement of concrete. There's a lawsuit still in place. This is only one part of the saga that is IGF. We had somebody text us uh, in our previous segment, and Greg, you probably know this off the top of your head because uh, you store so much information when it comes to financials. But uh, Mr. Bobo is saying, I thought it was a one-third deal each. Uh, it was the, the province, the city, and the owners. How'd that work out again when it came to the funding of the yeah, stadium? Yeah, well, not quite so much. The city made off like a bandit in mm-hmm. this deal. They got $30 million cash that was meant to redo the roads in and around Polo Park. They got that money as as money for the for the property at Polo Park, and then a sizable amount, that $119 million that was written off in August, that was to come from property taxes, that TIF financing arrangement that we've been talking about with True North Square, that was in place for the old stadium site, and then the Blue Bombers were to be paying millions of dollars every year. We got to dive back headfirst into this stadium kerfuffle? Kerfuffle's a good one. Uh, The headline suggests the Winnipeg Blue Bombers received a gigantic gift from the province of Manitoba yesterday afternoon and or that the football club is in a difficult financial situation. We are trying to help you sort it all out as the province announced a write-off of that $82 million, which is what had been referred to as phase two of the IGF stadium loan. The decision comes on the heels of the first part of the loan, about $119 million portion of that construction bill being written off by the province in August. That clears mud for you. Claire comme la boue, as my uh, French teacher used to say. Well, some say it's clear as mud on purpose, and it was purposefully created this way. The first part of that loan, the 119, was written off by the province, and it was the portion of the stadium project that was to be repaid via the property tax generated on anticipated new development on the former Winnipeg Stadium site. We all know where that stands. The Phase 2 loan was to be paid 2014 through 2058 by the operations of IGF field, uh, IGF. Uh, stadium via Winnipeg Football Club, football-related revenues and other events at the stadium through an entity called Triple B Stadium. Since 2014, the Blue Bombers have been writing checks worth millions of dollars every year toward this loan. What is Triple B? Well, it's essentially an entity that owns and operates IGF. Triple B has three member organizations, the City of Winnipeg, the U of M, and the Winnipeg Football Club. Triple B shows IGF as its asset, the U of M, leased land to Triple B for the construction of IGF, and then the lease between the U of M and Triple B is $1 per year for the life of the lease until 2016 for the property. The province says there is no reasonable expectation that the terms of phase two of the loan can be repaid under the original terms laid out in the agreement. Does this mean no more mortgage payments for the Blue Bombers? Well, Richard, Julie, and Julie Buckingham. What did I say? 
Richard, Julie, and Julie Buckingham. That's what I thought I said. Richard Cluche and Julie Buckingham spoke with the president and CEO of the Winnipeg Football Club, Wade Miller, to find out what this means for the football club, and we want to play this conversation for you in its entirety. Wade, is this the Bombers' portion of the loan? Uh, The Phase 2 loan uh, that Triple B has is the portion uh, that the Winnipeg Football Club makes its payments towards, yes. What does this mean for all your payments? Uh, it doesn't change our payments under the current management agreement. We'll still make our payments of uh, entertainment tax facility fee and then the excess cash that may be uh, generated based on uh, you know our, our operating profit each year, uh, depending on all the events that we have in the stadium. But is this not relief for the Bombers in one way or another? Uh, you know what? It's, it's acknowledging, I, I think what you saw the province do today was acknowledge that the long-term interest and um, over a period of time is, is not going to be sustainable. So I think that's what you're seeing today. And in that way, uh, you're still as the Winnipeg Blue Bombers having to make your payments, but they're not as onerous as they were anticipated to be. Well, we're still going to work extremely hard to make those payments. And, you know, we still have uh, some work to do uh, of building a capital fund that was supposed to be done through Triple B that was postponed to pay off a CIBC loan initially as well. Um, you know, so we're still going to work as hard. I can guarantee you that every day we're going to get up and, and, and work to generate as much revenue as, as we can uh, from the stadium, um, which goes to Triple B then. All right, so take a moment, digest that part of the explanation. Here's more. What confuses the heck out of people is the shell game, as the Premier described it, and how this stadium uh, is owned and operated and who owes what to whom. Yeah, I think, I think uh, what you said there is, is, is the first part of that is that it's an extremely complicated uh, setup of the financing that was put in place for the stadium initially. And I think that that is where the confusion starts uh, for everybody. And you have to spend a lot of time going through all of this to, to really understand it, uh, of that financing, like the, like the Premier said today. And, and it's, you know, so our, our, our responsibility is to make entertainment tax and facility fee every year and excess cash by a formula. And that's what we're going to continue to do. Um, but that number, you know, that's our minimum requirement is the excess cash and entertainment tax. And then the maximum is that 4.5 each year, which, which isn't sustainable. And there's a lot of other reasons for it for the football club, you know, with the ongoing public transportation cost that was so much higher than anybody initially thought. You know, I think it's important to remember the Winnipeg Football Club manages the whole facility and covers all the operating expenses of the stadium, which are substantial as well on an annual basis. So, and, and you know, when we don't have a year with large concerts or, or major events like a Great Cup or Heritage Classic, uh, that obviously impacts the bottom line as well. You must be relieved. No, I'm uh, going to get up every day and do the exact same thing. Well, and I understand that, but you know what? When someone is owing a lot of money on stuff, every morning you get up and you go, wow, I owe a lot of money on stuff. And what the Premier has done here is given you some relief. And that's why I'm suggesting you're a bit relieved today. Yeah, we, we, still, uh, we still believe that we have a responsibility to uh, manage the stadium in the most effective way. And generate and generate the most revenue as we can. So it is good that uh, there was acknowledgement from the province today 
uh, of our portion of that loan. Uh, the the TIF side was acknowledged um, over the last year, so there is it is good that that was acknowledged as well. Wade Miller is with us. He's president and CEO of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Richard and Julie with you. And Wade, as we've talked about, it is a complex formula that not a lot of people can follow. So maybe break down some of the numbers in terms of what the football club has repaid over the just as over the last couple of years. Yeah. So since uh, since we've been making payments on the stadium, we've repaid uh, 17 million over that period of time. And in addition to that, since the stadium has been built, put in another 15 million of capital into the stadium uh, to get the stadium built. And, and ongoing capital improvements each year as well. So that $17 million that you put in, was that the, the bare bones or a couple of those years were you able to uh, bump it up a little bit? No, that, so in each one of the years, that, that's been the maximum payment each year that's been required. And, and with, on top of that, we're also put money into an operating reserve to make the football club uh, sustainable long-term as well. So we're working extremely hard to, to make the football club sustainable, but also... Uh, generate as much revenue from the stadium as we can as well. A lot of people will see this story and they'll think, uh, they'll make the link, you know, rightly or wrongly, that the football club, that the team is in trouble. Can you just dispel that for folks? Yeah, for sure. The uh, football club is in uh, good financial, um, a good financial situation. We work extremely hard to ensure that we have good operating uh, reserves, which we do. And, you know, long-term, um, we'll be in good shape, and it's uh, you know each each week, each month, in each year, uh, we're going to work extremely hard to generate the uh, operating profits that we do each year. And as we understand it, the Blue Bombers will still have to pay about four point four million dollars per year as a repayment on this loan, and the maintenance costs on operating the stadium, which could range anywhere from 2 to $5 million. So the Blue Bombers are not off the hook here. No, but the Premier made it clear yesterday that they wouldn't be not expected to pay a large enough of that principal back, right? So there, there should be some relief because it's basically saying you don't owe all of it anymore. Is it an understatement to say that this stadium's been a bit of a gong show right from the start? I'd say it's a massive understatement. And you're talking to a guy, uh, me, who thinks we needed a state, a state, brand new stadium 20 years ago, uh, that it was long overdue, something that needed to be done. But I think the deal itself, in my opinion, designed to fail. And I think this is a situation where the proponents, the stakeholders, everybody involved here kind of reversed engineered the financing to make it look like something that could work. But yeah. it's easy to point the finger at the government, which, again, in looking at this deal, and that's where Premier Pallister is pointing his finger at directly at the NDP, the previous government, saying this deal was raw from the start. But then people signed on to that, right? So it's like if you go to a bank and someone offers me a great loan, which I have no chance of paying back, and the terms seem really great, mm-hmm. is, it my, is it my fault for signing on to that? Or is it the bank's fault for offering me such a, a deal that to which I will lose no matter what? Yeah, but what's the ramifications for you signing on a mortgage that you know you ultimately can't afford? You're going to well, lose I your lose home. I lose my home. Well, the Blue Bombers are not going to lose their home. You can't pick up IGF 
staff and move it to Kenora, to Fargo, or some other community. That that piece yeah, of not infrastructure, closing on that. Yeah, it's not going anywhere. And we all know that there's enough business, and the and the province is going to step up if the Blue Bombers are broke. We've seen it once before. At this point in time, I don't think Winnipeg's prepared to let their CFL team walk away, which is not at issue no. at this point in time. No, this bombers- was a bad deal to get a piece of infrastructure that normally cities pay for a long time. Cities paid 100% of the freight, and the idea was that private enterprise and this convoluted deal with the old stadium property and some new taxing and some new revenue for the Blue Bombers could help pay for this, and it's just simply not enough money. And the Bombers have had some really good years. They've done a good job, and they've they've been in the black a couple of years, too, but it's just... It's never, it was never going to be enough cash. They've written checks for $17 million since 2014. Imagine you live in an apartment. You lie down to go to sleep. But through the wall, or maybe the floor, or maybe even through the ceiling... All you can hear is this. That's horrible. <laughs> okay, so How did that- you get into my bedroom last night? That's what I want to know. <laughs> uh, Matt, so that's the story out of uh, Quebec, Montreal. This woman was snoring. She moved into an apartment two years ago. 3 a.m. She gets a knock on the door from the landlord or a phone call saying, you were too loud. So over the next few weeks, months, they drop off like... Uh, aids to help her stop snoring, advice for her to go get a counselor, a doctor, all the rest. The snoring persists. She says they've been harassing her. They say, you know what, we just want you to stop snoring. And yesterday, there, or earlier this week, there was a ruling that essentially said, you know what, this woman needs to stop snoring. It's The tenant group have done what they can. The renters have done what they can. And she can't be complaining. They've been. She's, she's at, in the wrong. It's a noise bylaw violation. So our question, <laughs> Jeff made a face. Well, it's loud, Jeff. Tough. Really? Yeah. Well, what is, people snore. That's all there is to it. Get over it. Well, Put in it, hearing aids or uh, earplugs. earplugs. Yeah. Well, people who live in apartments are expected to tolerate a reasonable amount of noise. I mean, it just comes with the territory. But if it's that distracting that people are complaining, and she the the, tri, the tribunal ruled that that because the tenant might be suffering from a sleep disorder, it's her responsibility to seek medical advice, and it was unfair for her neighbors to suffer the consequences of her inaction. I mean, some, I got, like, I've lived in apartments where you hear all sorts of things. Same and, here. And, but the snoring, to me, is just one of, I don't know if there's, it's like nails on chalkboard. Like, really? Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm the opposite. For all, And for one thing, I'm the one who snores. Yeah, people, there you go. People, yeah. I've chased people out of hotel rooms before. They're like, <laughs> I can't share a room with you, JB. You snore too much. And no. seriously, and they, like, slept on the couch in the lobby because that was it that bad. Wow. But I also like the sound of snoring because I grew up with my dad's a snorer and through my door I could hear him snoring and I find it to be a comforting sound. Other sounds, screaming and stomping from neighbors, that I have a problem with. Bedroom sounds, snoring, knocking boots, what have you. Let her rip. I don't care. <laughs> Knocking boots. Well, the thing about the snoring though is that if it's consistent, I see what you're saying, it can be like white noise. Yeah. But most people, and I, like record yourself one night. The snoring is not just that gentle yeah. up and down. Like there's that every once in a while that <laughs> near death. Yes, where they like almost die or you think they can't breathe anymore and they And then choke. you wait, you're waiting yes. like five seconds, like make another noise so I know you're still yeah. alive, you know? Yeah, no, like I, that that's the problem with snoring. Just a few months ago I was threatened with eviction as a matter of fact for for my snoring. <laughs> really? 
That's right. And so I, in order to maintain my comfortable spot in the bedroom, I had to go get a CPAP machine. And, and they said that it, it, it takes away your snoring, and it does. My wife has never been happier in her life. Wow. Do yeah. you find uh, that you're... So the, the eviction notice has been withdrawn, by the way. Are you yeah. getting a more restful sleep, do you find? Or is it uh, the same? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, so I don't understand why this woman would resist something like that if it if it would help her. Well, because she doesn't think she has a problem. And I think, Greg, you said you tried that machine. Is that right? Yeah, I went for the whole sleep study thing. And uh, when they put the machine on, it didn't really help me very much just because of the nature of my, my sleep apnea. But... Yeah, I feel sorry for anybody who sleeps within five blocks of me. I, I'm terrible. It, it's, so what does your wife do? She just deals with it. It was part yeah. of the interview process the whole time I was dating uh, until I got married. It's like, uh, so you grew up, uh, did, when you're growing up, did your dad snore? Oh, terrible. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's excellent. <laughs> you're in. <laughs> yeah, it's it's I, like the question about does your dad have, um, or is your mother, the hair? Like if your mom's dad had hair, then oh, your, your, right. hus- your, your, yes, your husband's yes. going to have good hair. Yes. So you ask the question, does the dad snore? Uh-huh. 656 on 680 CJOB. Let us know if you've ever had to deal with this kind of a noise situation. I once had, uh, I came to a truce actually with my neighbor upstairs <laughs> because uh, he used to make some some noise. And I mm-hmm. I uh, would text him and say, well, I do enjoy the dulcet sounds of Warren G and Nate Dogg. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to watch a movie and all I can hear is regulate through your floor. So can you <laughs> turn it down just a little bit? Did you have to breath smash at one point? No, no. We, no. If there was ever a problem. I would just tap on the ceiling with nice. my, one of my golf clubs and, away, and he'd turn it down. So. We've got a great text message here. I, I, how is it that we hear the story about the, the Quebec lady gets evicted for snoring and uh, the lady in Winnipeg that has cockroaches has to sublet her apartment? We want to talk about Trump and trade. Yeah, and it's a bit of a he said, she said game, or he said, he said. Trump yesterday talking about how he denied Trudeau a meeting to discuss trade. The prime minister's office saying they never had a request to have that meeting. And Trump, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump, certainly had a lot to say about that and his thoughts on our trade minister in a very lengthy 82-minute press conference last night. Did you reject a one-on-one meeting with the Canadian prime minister, Justin Trudeau? Yeah, I did. Why? Because his tariffs are too high and he doesn't seem to want to move. And I've told him, forget about it. And frankly, we're thinking about just taxing cars coming in from Canada. That's the mother load. That's the big one. Uh, We're very unhappy with the negotiations and the negotiating style of Canada. Uh, We don't like their representative very much. They've taken advantage. I love Canada, by the way. I have so many friends. I have everybody. It's so many friends. But uh, that has nothing to do with this. I'm representing the United States. Uh, Mexico was totally, I mean, they were great. By the way, the new president has been great. the deal is done. Now it has to go through Congress and, you know, a lot of things have to happen. But we've done Bob Lighthizer, who's here someplace. Where's Bob? Bob. Uh, Bob Lighthizer has done a great job of negotiating, as they have. But the deal is done. It's and up Mr. to Congress. President's- but Canada has treated us very badly. They've treated our farmers in Wisconsin and New York State and a lot of other states very badly. Dairy products, 300 percent. 300 percent. How do you sell a dairy product at 300%? The answer is you don't. 
What it is is a barrier. It's basically they're saying, we don't have any barriers. By the way, it's 300 percent, so you don't send it in because you can't compete. So Canada has a long way to go. I, I must be honest with you, we're not getting along at all with their negotiators. We think their negotiators have taken advantage of our country for a long time. We had people that didn't know what they were doing. And that's why we had, over the last five or six years, if you average it out, we had $800 billion a year in trade losses. It's ridiculous. It's not going to happen. What about a lot was said there. The biggest thing, the biggest takeaway is that he doesn't like who they're at the table with, not necessarily the country, but the people that they're talking to. Uh, Chuck Davidson is the president of Manitoba Chambers of Commerce and is on the phone with us this morning. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Lauren. So I know you were paying attention to that last night. Hearing it again, does that uh, strike any fear that we might be even further away from some sort of trade deal? Well, you hope what this is is just a lot more rhetoric than what we've been hearing for the last uh, year for the most part, because I think the one thing that the president failed to, to realize as well is just how big of trading partners Canada and the U.S. are and how reliant U.S. businesses are on the Canada economy. Uh, and when he talks about that $800 billion trade deficit, he's pretty much factually wrong. Uh, when you look in terms of trade on an on, a, on an annual basis over the over the course of the past year, we're virtually we're virtually at par in terms of the, the amount that we import and the amount we export to the U.S. So to say that there's a, a trade deficit of that magnitude is just it's factually incorrect. Uh, and I think that you know, <laughs> I think it's it, 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 it's interesting that uh, you know they don't like our trade negotiators. Well. You know, on behalf of our trade negotiators, they're they're doing what's in the best interest of trying to modernize an AFTA agreement to get something that's going to be uh, is not something that's simply going to be a loss for Canada. So, um, you know, I you know, unless uh, unless the, the the U.S. president expects expects Canada to simply roll over and simply uh, do as he says, uh, my sense is he's never going to like any trade negotiator we have. Chuck, uh, the dairy question gets brought up asked and answered uh, all in one breath, it seems, uh, by the president and and negotiators in the United States. Is this the, the hill to die on for Canadian negotiators, Christian Freeland and, and everyone involved in this deal? Well, I think it's important that, uh, you know, we, we continue to look at that. But I think when you, when, you, when you take it in context of how important that is from a trade perspective, we're talking less than 1%. Uh, and if this is the big issue that the, that the U.S. president seems to be wanting to uh, make a big part of any trade negotiations, again, it's looking at it in its entirety. Uh, and while we will have uh, supply management in, in Canada uh, that does protect uh, the dairy industry, on the U.S. side, that we've also got direct subsidies that are happening from the U.S. government uh, to the agriculture sector. So it's it's not necessarily a apples and uh, and oranges. It's more of an apples and oranges kind of debate that's happening right there. If it's one that we need to modernize, I think absolutely have those discussions. Uh, but is it one that I think we would uh, say is a deal breaker for uh, modernizing an after agreement? Most would say that that's that's not even uh, you know one of the top ten uh, areas that uh, we should be discussing. But the pressure is undoubtedly mounting. Does that feel like we're moving farther away from getting something done here, considering how long it's taking? And, and those words yesterday, I mean, whether it's just him blustering and making fun or doing what Trump does, which is just to say whatever's on his mind at that moment, we're still in a situation where some might worry that it was taking a step back, not forward in these negotiations. 
Well, there's no question what it does is it, is it creates that level of uncertainty. Um, but I can also tell you what it does is it's not just on the Canada side. Uh, over the course of the summer that the Manitoba Chamber, we had the opportunity to go down and visit with North Dakota Chambers, with Minnesota Chambers. We've met with businesses from Indiana as well. And as much as it creates uncertainty on our side of the border, it also creates great uncertainty on their side of the border as well. And while their economy has been doing well over the past number of years, there's great concern that the longer these tariffs go on and the longer this trade war continues, businesses in the U.S. are also going to be uh, severely uh, impacted by this. So it's not just a simple, um, you know, let's let's put in this, this trade war and put these tariffs in and we're just going to punish Canada. He's also punishing businesses within the U.S. as well. And I think, you know, we heard that loud and clear from the U.S. chambers and the chambers that we met with that they see this is just as problematic. They want to have a good, strong relationship with Canada. Uh, is there an opportunity to modernize an agreement that's 25 years old? Absolutely. Uh, but let's not throw it out, recognizing that uh, we are each other's biggest trade partners, that we are reliant on each other. And the more that you go down this, this war of, of, of tariffs, it's not a win-win. It's a lose-lose on both sides of the border. And for, for whatever reason, uh, the U.S. president fails to understand that. Well, and the prime minister's office uh, refutes President Trump's uh, declaration that he turned down a meeting with the prime minister. The PMO says uh, no meeting request was actually made. Chuck Davidson, thanks for this. Thanks for your insight. Thanks, Greg. Small town salute. Loren McNabb, where are we going this week? We are going to the city of Selkirk. So we're saying city, but I think there's still sort of that small town feel in Selkirk. And on the phone right now is Mayor Larry Johansson. Good morning. Good morning, Loren. How are you doing? I am great. It's not too much of a trek for anybody who might be heading to your neck of the woods this weekend. But say people don't know where they're going or what you have to offer. Kind of walk me through how I would arrive into Selkirk and what I might see. Oh, absolutely. Well, you're well. You're right. We're uh, we we have the big city amenities here, but we've got that small town feel, and uh, and we tout that uh, very much. So, uh, we've got a lot going on in Selkirk. Um, we've become uh, a, a Hollywood North. Uh, we've had a lot of movies here. We've had a lot of documentaries here. Uh, Capote's been here. New in Town, Don Cherry, Goons. We've had numerous documentaries and TV series. Rennie's been here. Whoopi's been here. Uh, right now, we've got the middle of town closed off at 6 at night till 6 in the morning. Uh, we've got a very exciting Netflix show uh, that's shooting here. Uh, they're doing a lot of uh, specialty stunts, car rollovers, crashes, and whatever. So that's going to be one of the, they say, one of the top movies that's going to come out of Netflix, and it's going to rival the uh, Hollywood greats. Uh, we've also got a uh, what's supposedly one of the horror movies of the centuries being filmed at our old hospital and throughout Selkirk. Uh, but one of the biggest uh, Hollywood North events here is uh, we're going to be looking forward excitingly to the premiere of uh, Burden of Proof Season 2, which was shot almost in its entirety uh, in Selkirk. So that's really, really exciting news for us. Uh, we've got Hollywood ha- or Halloween hot. Uh, coming up at our Marine Museum. It's in mid-October. Uh, details 482 7761. Uh, these are ships that uh, graced the majestic Lake Winnipeg for, uh, for years. Uh, they've been fully restored and they're in our. Uh, 
beautiful Selkirk Park, and we do a Hollywood or a Halloween haunt there uh, every fall time. So the kids love it. Um, everybody looks forward to it. Uh, come November 29th, 30th, and December 1st, I've got to tout Hollywood Alley and Home for the Holidays. Uh, Winnipeg streets must be empty because I think we have half of Winnipeg out here for that weekend. Uh, Hollywood uh, or Holiday Alley, uh, we have uh, 10 sites. Uh, we've got uh, three communities are involved. Uh, it's the home for the holidays. We have a sleepover at our beautiful Canalta Hotel. We have a park and ride. You can go on Selkirk Transit and visit all the sites. Uh, Holiday Alley, we closed down our historic downtown between Maine and Eveline. Uh, we have over 100,000 uh, LEG lights um, on all our buildings. Uh, it's just, just beautiful. Some of the uh, events that we've had last year, we had Art on Ice. We had six ice fishing shacks that were designed by area high school students and painted by local artists. They, get, they were uh, a silent auction. Um, we've had makers and crafters, uh, a market. We had a Manitoba Hydro chili cook-off, indigenous storytelling, round dance, music, entertainment, and giant selfies for the kids with Santa, beer and scotch tasting, uh, lots of entertainment and music, and lots of kids' events. And this will happen again November 29th, 30th, and December 1st. We'll have all those things Lauren, and we'll have even more. So it's a very, very exciting fall. and uh, Very busy no- fall. Uh, we're talking to the mayor of Selkirk, and I don't want to cut you off. I just want to get back to something you mentioned at the very beginning, which is yeah. Selkirk you refer to as the Hollywood of the North, which oh, i got to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure I would have uh, said that a few years ago. Yeah, no, it's been fantastic. We've had so many movies here. And like I said, Kabodi was the first one we have uh, about Truman. Capote, and that was one of the first movies that was made here, and it's it was uh, it just set us on the path, and uh, we've been going ever since with movies, documentaries, but again, burden of proof, uh, uh, Eagle Vision production, uh, season two, uh, almost film in its entirety here, uh, Kyle Irwin production, it's uh, who's of Ice Trucker uh, fame. It's it's fantastic. Uh, it's they've done so much for our community. Uh, last year, with season one, they brought over a million dollars into uh, Selkirk, uh, treated all the residents well, treated all the businesses they used well, um, and and we've become uh, we've got a real reputation in California as a, as a good place to do business for movies, good place to do business. Uh, uh, for filming, we have all the right bylaws in place. They know exactly what they have to do. They want to close a street. They want to change signs on a building. They want to change the uh, rebrand it uh, to Millwood, as in the Burden of Proofs case. They know exactly what to do. They don't have to waste any time by running around trying to find the right people to talk to. They, we've already set the rules in place, and they follow them, and they don't waste any time. So. Uh, we we just can't believe the good luck and good fortune we've had with movies in, in the city of Selkirk. Well, Larry, if you were on the uh, advocacy board, and clearly as mayor, that's one of your roles, I'm not surprised that this is turning out the way it is. You mentioned Kyle Irving, the son of Bob Irving, yeah, here absolutely. at 680 CJOB. Knuckles Jr., I call that, him. Jr. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. And Burden of Proof Season 2, receiving uh, critical acclaim as well, which is Huge. why it's... Why it's it's in its second season of production. Absolutely. Larry. Picked up by a U.S. network also. So, yep. I mean, not only CBC now, but but a U.S. network. And, I mean, it's it's just on fire. And I have to credit the province of Manitoba. 
uh, Manitoba tax credit. This has gone a long way to uh, to bringing movies, to bringing documentaries to Manitoba. And, I mean, we're just a piece of it, of course, but we're really seeing a lion's share of it. And uh, please keep that uh, that tax credit going. They have to look at the return on investment. And, and for the dollars they put into it, the millions of dollars that are coming back into Manitoba communities is huge. Mayor Larry Johansson of Selkirk, you mentioned a Netflix production. Yes. Uh, what's do you know what that's called? I, I can't give that away. Okay, uh, <laughs> but it's going to be a major, major Netflix show. Uh, last night they started. They're going to close the middle of uh, Manitoba and Maine for our center of town here. They're going to close it for three nights in a row, from six o'clock till uh, a p.m. till six o'clock in the morning to film. And uh, hopefully they had uh, uh, night rainy scenes last night because I think that's what uh, <laughs> that's what the flavor was out here. I don't know about Winnipeg, but uh, it's so exciting. I mean, when we have these kind of events that come to Selkirk, you know, the, the residents see the big trailers coming into town. Hotels are full. Uh, they, they go to all the businesses. You know, they support uh, the businesses tremendously when they use uh, citizens' homes. Uh, they, you know, they, they put them up for the night at the beautiful South Beach Casino or our fantastic Canalta Hotel here in Selkirk. Uh, they just treat everybody royally. And, uh, you know, as mayor, for uh, I've been in politics here for 12 years, and, and I've had a lot of uh, interaction with the movies people, and uh, especially Burden of Proof, uh, the series. But I just couldn't be happier with the business, uh, with the movie business and what they bring to our community. Uh, one final question, uh, Mayor Johansson. I'm actually uh, potentially going to visit Selkirk this weekend. Just wondering if you can rattle off the names of a couple of restaurants that I might want to check out. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, a, a real, real nice spot uh, right in the center of town between Maine and Manitoba Avenue in our historic downtown. We have Roxy's and, uh, you know, that that's that's one of the more popular spots in town. Uh, it, it's a terrific uh, restaurant with uh, pretty well everything on the menu. Uh, you can't go wrong. No matter how fussy the eater, they'd find something uh, there for them. And Riverside Grill, uh, at the end of that street, is a very historic restaurant that's been around uh, for for a century. And that restaurant is featured prominently in Burden of Proof, but that restaurant has also been featured prominently in many, many movies that have been shot here. Uh, New in Town with Rennie was, was a big one. It was uh, it was used for that. So um, it's it's run uh, in part by Salka Conclusion, uh, which uh, which uses challenged uh, challenged residents to to work there and that. So my hats off to that both those restaurants, and I recommend them highly. All right, Larry Johansson, Mayor of Selkirk, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. All right, and I uh, should also mention the show uh, that he's talking about, uh, Burden of Truth. Actually, it's Burden of Truth uh, on CBC. And the U.S. network that picked it up is the CW. They picked it up, uh, for, and it uh, debuted on the C-dubs on July 25th. So that's great. It's always great when a Canadian show gets picked up by the U.S. because it's mm-hmm. always the other way around, right? The American shows get picked up by the Canadian network. So that's really exciting stuff. So much happening in Selkirk. And looking forward to maybe trying Roxy's or Riverside Grill. Well, the headline just a few days ago was that it was on the verge of cancellation after 108 years. The Santa Claus Parade Board saying they needed another $68,000 to build a new Santa float and pay for costs for the parade. Money it says it just doesn't have after a sponsorship deal fell through. 
Well, this morning, some good news. Skip the Dishes is stepping up to the plate to help. Chris Amare is with Skip the Dishes and joins us on the phone now. Good morning. Good morning, Lorraine. Greg, thanks for having me. Well, tell me about this. A check has been written uh, for for how much? How how are you helping out? We're helping out with forty thousand dollars. Amazing. So, when you heard this news right away, did you folks think over there we need to do something? Walk me through sort of how it went and and why you wanted to help out. Well, for us, Winnipeg is home. Um, we're as fellow Winnipeggers, we thought, hey, community is very important to us. Uh, a lot of people don't know, but we actually have about 2,000 people here in the Exchange District. And when I, we woke up and heard the news, there's a, there's a, a buzz across the office thinking, hey, what can we do? What part can we play to help out with this? We thought, why don't I take our community approach? Why don't we challenge the business community to get involved? As this is a private, it's a, it's a business-funded event, what can we do to help everybody in Winnipeg make sure this succeeds? Well, Chris, I think this is an example of, can we call this, uh, are you at the head of Winnipeg's new economy and burgeoning uh, tech economy that maybe we underplay and don't talk enough about? I think so. I mean, if you look at Canada itself, it's coming out of a, as emergence of a tech, tech uh, leader across the globe. Why can't Winnipeg be part of that? Well, and indeed, Red River College uh, getting ready to build that brand new innovation center right in its downtown campus. Um, uh, so, yeah, Winnipeg is at the center of this. Now, it's a $40,000 donation. Worth pointing out that the GoFundMe page is now at $80,000 of its $100,000 goal. And Skip the Dishes, you're, you stepped up to make this massive donation, but also to use your, your powerful voice to challenge Winnipeg's business community to get in on the action, right? Exactly. We, we thought it's take a, a community approach to solve this problem. It's not just enough for one person to take the, the full amount, but we thought it's, it's all work together to be able to create this awesome parade and keep it going for another hundred years. Well, the parade organizer said she was pretty pleased to get that phone call saying that they, they have that money. Uh, it doesn't fully save the parade yet. So the idea being that we're, we're almost there. You did this. Is your expectation by the end of the day, there'll be another business that comes forward? Or hope. Well, I, I think all Winnipeggers know that we're very frugal people, but we also care about community here. So I do hope that there's somebody else out there to win step up and join the cause. So I'm pretty pretty hopeful, Joe. Yeah. Our guest is, uh, sorry, Greg, I just wanted to, to say that our guest is Chris Samer. He is the CEO and co-founder of Skip the Dishes. Greg, proceed. Yeah, sorry, uh, Brett. And uh, Chris, I think you're kind of uh, suggesting that this is a culmination, uh, an action that really embodies so many of our our prairie roots and our, our prairie graces. Well, I, I think so, too. Like Coming from the prairie myself, uh, I, I remember just thinking about the, my experience as a child growing up being able to celebrate with the community, seeing this parade. Now, the parade was really key to all this. For me, it kicks off the Christmas season. And it'd be really just a big shame to not be able to celebrate one more time. You're going to get a float? Uh, keep an eye out for us. You'll see skipping the parade somewhere. Yeah, you bet. All right. Chris Samara is the CEO and co-founder of Skip the Dishes. Thank you very much for joining us this morning, sir. We appreciate it. Thank you for your time. So once again, the GoFundMe page now at $80,000 after Skip the Dishes stepped in with a $40,000 donation. They're still trying to raise another twenty grand. Skip the Dishes challenging the uh, Winnipeg business community. Just looking at the recent donations. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are still d- donations coming in fast and furious in recent hours. As of 35 minutes ago, there was a $500 donation from someone named Courtney. And a lot of little donations, 20 bucks here, 50 bucks there, $100 there. But it all 
all adds up, right? Well, it's been free if you think about that. And I've taken my kids to it, returned to it after a long hiatus because I wasn't necessarily going as an adult. But now I see why you would go with adults or with kids and you go and it's free. It's this great few hours and it's so festive down there. And you stop and you forget about the idea that there's a lot of these events in Winnipeg that someone else is putting on that we're not paying for. So it's great to hear a business like this. Yeah, of course. And the business community steps up in terms of participation because without the corporate floats, there's no parade in the first place. But you've got security costs. You've got uh, permits that you've got to pull. There are people that need to do the work behind the scenes. So it's not anything that you can necessarily pull off with zero dollars. And I remember the conversation and the controversy when the Cinnaboyne Park Zoo started charging an admission. You know, there was that giant piggy bank in the shape of a polar bear, like Debbie the polar bear, that basically said, give me a couple of dollars. And if we'd all just thrown a few quarters or a loony or a toonie every time we walked through the zoo's gates back when it was free... They may never have had to charge an admission, and uh, we're just at that tipping point where, unfortunately, thousands and thousands of dollars are required, and I'm not surprised the community is stepping up in a big fashion, and uh, uh, hats off to Skip the Dishes for, for doing what they've done. Winnipeg International Writers Festival continues through Saturday. As mentioned yesterday, in case you missed it, 67 events, 76 writers, 63 books, and 23 venues. The website is thinairwinnipeg.ca. Now, yesterday, we had a fascinating conversation with two authors, a scientist and a poet, who collaborated on a book called Listening to the Bees. We were lucky and privileged to have that conversation and have you hear that conversation Today, we are lucky and privileged to meet another writer taking part in the festival. And again, it's a collaboration. Kristen Den Hartog is a novelist who just published a book with her sister. It's called The Cowkeeper's Wish. And it's the follow-up to their book, The Occupied Garden, a family memoir of war-torn Holland. And The Cowkeeper's Wish is about their maternal ancestors who lived a Dickensian existence in London in the late 1880s and on. And Kristen is here. Kristen, did I even say that right? Dickensian existence? Dickensian is correct. What is a Dickensian? It really does have that feeling. Well, the book begins and actually starts in the 1840s after our three times great-grandparents walk from Wales to England with their cows. And they settle there, we think, because they wanted to escape poverty and have a, a better life. But they ended up living in an incredibly poor neighborhood um, with their cows running a little dairy in uh, in an area actually where, where Dickens lived as a small boy too. So it's very much the feeling that you get from those novels of the level of poverty that people lived I, much? Fe- I feel like you maybe have to have a shower after you read this with all yes. the coal soot and, <laughs> and everything that, that, that envelops your, your mind when you, when you submerge yourself in a story like this. That's right. But it's a fascinating time to research. Just, uh, and and what, what we were so curious about, too, was trying to get at um, the perspective of ordinary people living in those times. So what was it like to be that poor and what was it like to, to, um, to try to escape out of that? I always imagine what would it take? What would it take to pick up and leave your homeland and back up and go, 
That's enough. I've had enough, and I'm going to either walk from Wales to England with my cows, or as so many of our ancestors did, get on a ship and travel across the Atlantic Ocean and then take a train into the middle of nowhere to here in Manitoba and basically be handed a rock farm as my family was (laughs) in the late 1860s. So in many ways, that is what the story is about, what propels people to do those kinds of things and to make those changes. And often it's for their family. So the cowkeeper of the title even though he's only a very small part of the book, he's only really in the first chapter. His story goes a long way because it's really his wish is really the wish that all parents have for their children and their children's children. So have this a better life. This is based on some of your family. It's your ancestors, but yeah. but how much of it is were you able to uncover as truth or as you followed the genealogy back? And how much yeah. of it is about painting a picture of what we know about that time and combining a bit of the truth with not necessarily fiction, but uh, a characterization right. or just an explanation of the times. It's not fiction at all. It it is very much nonfiction. We we decided early on, so with the Occupied Garden, which is about my father's family in the Second World War, because we knew the people that we were writing about, my Oma and Opa and my, my father and his siblings, we felt comfortable um, kind of assuming how they would feel in a certain situation and adding some of that characterization in. But here we were going back to a much earlier time period and we were writing about people that we didn't know, that we'd never met. So we decided very early on that we would not do that. We would um, we would write about what we knew about them and then we would expand the story for the places where there were holes. So for instance, if we if there was a period of time where we didn't know very much about, we would find out what was going on in their street or in a place where they lived or something big that was happening in the news. So there are things woven into the story like Um, the stories of Jack the Ripper and Charlie Chaplin and the Titanic. And they all have really interesting links to our own family and give us a way to tell the broader story of the time. So it's very much a family history and a social history at the same time. Our guest is Kristen Den Hartog. She is participating in Thin Air, Winnipeg's International Writers Festival, and will be at the Carol Shields Auditorium at the Millennium Library from 4.30 until 5.30 this afternoon. And uh, she wrote, co-wrote this book with her sister over the course of nine years. Yes. So when you work on something for nine years, when it's finally time to let it go and bring it out into the world, is there almost a reluctance to say, yeah, okay, sure. it's ready? It's scary, boy. It's scary. This kind of a book is scary for a couple of different reasons. Because you want to make sure that you've got everything right. And we checked and double-checked all kinds of things and checked each other. But you're also writing about your own family. So you want it to feel right for the family members, too. But the nine-year thing... We were surprised because we said to each other towards the end of our our writing the book, how long has it been since we... And we looked back to our original emails when we started talking about the idea, and it was nine years ago. And there were little gaps where we worked on other things and and took some time away from it. But it was a huge project, and we never intended it to be that big. We, We originally thought we would tell the story of our grandmother's childhood and her move to Canada after World War I. So both her parents died in the 1910s, and then she moved to Canada with a family friend. And we thought, well, that's kind of a neat pairing for the Occupied Garden because it's a similar time period. It wraps around the war. It's contained. We'll tell that. But in order to set the 
the tone for that, we felt that we needed to find out a bit more about her childhood in England. And we kept uncovering more and more interesting things. And we just kept going further and further back. So, so is there a sequel then coming? I mean, you know, did we get, <laughs> if we didn't get to all those things you wanted to, it sounds like you need another nine years for the third book. Yeah, well, you know, I've got so many projects lined up of things that I want to work on in the future that I just, I'm excited to get back to to a different sort of writing too. As fascinating as this was, um, I'm ready to to move away from the family. Can I ask you about working with your sister? I have a sister. She, I would call her my best friend, but I don't know if we could sit down together for nine years yeah. and work on a project like this. Yeah. I mean, was there other times where you had to take a walk, you know, in yeah, the forest? Yeah, for sure. For sure. There were things that we disagreed on and, and um, difficulties that we had to get over. But because we had the experience of the occupied garden that went so well, we were excited to delve into it again. And this is not, I could not write a novel with someone else, but this kind of book, it's almost like this, the the pieces of the story are there. You just have to find them and figure out how you want to weave them together. Whereas a novel comes from your imagination. You don't know where it's going to go or where it's going to lead you. So, and the level of research that you have to do for a book like this is just so huge. It's it's wonderful to work on some to work on something like this with someone who has the same connection to the story, the same family connection, the same sort of obsessive tendencies that we seem to have. And yeah, it's been a really great experience for both of us. I don't know if it's obsessive, but we seem to have created or there seems to be a budding love affair with genealogy in North America and that idea of of finding out where we come yeah. from. What's the attraction, do you think, for others and the value of, of knowing those stories about where we come from? Yeah, I think um, for me, it's just so gratifying. And it's not about finding the names and the dates. That's not enough for me. I need to know the stories mm-hmm. behind. And like I was saying earlier, even if, even if you can't find out a whole bunch about one person, if you can find out the things that were happening around them, it gives you the idea of what they might have been like. And and when I say might have been, that for me is part of the draw too. I kind of like that there are always holes. There are always things that you're never going to find out because it keeps you going back and it keeps you trying to come at the story from a different angle and you always have, uncovers different You could stories. imagine if you found out that your great-great-uncle uh, or great-great-great-uncle was a shopkeeper and maybe, well, maybe sold a weapon to Jack, you went yeah. to Jack the yeah, Ripper, right? Exactly. You, could, yeah. you could You could surmise or, yeah. or fill in the holes that way, right? Yeah, to yeah, be yeah. a part of, of history, whether it's, <laughs> it's true That's or right. not. That's right. And this is the kind of research that, that teaches us about the bigger events in history from our own family perspective. How do you do that research? How do you look look into something that happened well over 100 years ago? Well, there's all kinds of genealogical sites that people are probably familiar with, like Ancestry and Find My Past and Family Search. Um, and we used those extensively. They're, they're, they've got so many wonderful volumes of information. But we also used things like the British Newspaper Archive. So you can go on and you can search for... Um, something that happened on a certain street, or you can search for a name. I, I found Benjamin the cowkeeper in the newspaper uh, having watered down his milk and 
So, yeah, things like that, just just different ways of approaching the story. Have you been back or gone? Yes. Yeah, because I was going to say part of the, the search and the quest, as Greg was talking about, to find more about your, your history and your ancestry, I think there's more and more of us also just saying they'd like to go see and walk yes. the paths and the roads that our yeah. great-great-great-grandfathers did. So what was that like, knowing what you know now and, and taking that visit? It must have been a different experience than it might yeah. have been previously. That was lovely. And we also went to the London Metropolitan Archives. So there are certain things that, that have been digitized and that you can look at online but there is so much information and it takes so many years to digitize it all that some of it is still just sitting in the archives so that was great to be able to go and flip through these old rippled old ledgers and see what we could find out but also to wander the streets and see see sometimes just remnants of a building left or sometimes the whole building is still there because these lovely old cities like london treasure things like that her name is Kristen Den Hartog. She wrote The Cowkeeper's Wish, co-wrote it with her sister, Tracy Kasabowski. And Kristen is going to be at the Carol Shields Auditorium at the Millennium Library today from 4.30 to 5.30 for the seminar Big Ideas from London to London. It's part of Thin Air, Winnipeg's International Writers Festival. The website is thinairwinnipeg.ca. And again, this has been on since last Friday, and it runs through Saturday. And the book, once again, The Cowkeeper's Wish. Kristen, thank you so much for stopping by. What a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.